now, this is Box to Box Stoppage Time with Michael Edgeley and Willem van Denderen. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box Stoppage Time. You're Willem van Denderen, Derek Dyson and Michael Edgeley as we scour the week in football across the globe via our games, teams and hot topics of the week. Mr. Derek Dyson will come to you first in position at the Hillsville Sanctuary. You've got a leg of lamb marinating in the Hoyts, Herbs and Spices in the slow cooker. You'll attend to that once the show is out. But before you get there, you've got a game of the week for us. Yeah, we touched on this in the main show, Willem, and that's the England versus North Macedonia game, the 7-0 victory for the three Lions there. Um, I suppose selfishly, the reason that this sort of leapt to me was was firstly the the Saka hat trick. Um, a couple of the goals were absolutely sensational, and I sometimes think, as an Arsenal fan, you um, you know, particularly watching them from afar, I, I, I think I might take this player a bit. You know, don't, don't rate him as high as I should do. Like he's clearly absolutely superb, and the goal where he was set up by. Trent Alexander-Arnold, uh, we just smashed it into the top corner on the volley. was 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 amazing, uh, amazing to see, even in an England shirt. Um, and look, I think overall, it was an impressive performance from England. North Macedonia are not the best team in world football, but the phrase kind of goes, they're no mugs. And I don't think they are mugs. I think they're a well-organised team, probably were set up to, to not be broken down. But, but England's kind of... You know, a galaxy of options of Bellingham, Grealish, Foden, Kane, Saka. You know, the names just roll off roll off the tongue uh, there. And it's not, you know, they absolutely turned the heat up and uh, won won that game very comfortably. It was a fifty um, eighth international goal for for Harry Kane, his second one in in the two, um, and England well on track to qualify. So while I'm not, a, you know, a huge fan. I kind of respect a team that, you know, is doing what it usually does, which is, uh, is excellent in qualifying. Um, looks like one of the forces in world football seems to be improving. Um, really interesting experiment in the last couple of games, playing Trent Alexander-Arnold in the midfield as well uh, in a central role, which I think was quite bold from Southgate. So, uh, yeah, that was a good result for England and they're well on track for Germany now. Having had a look at uh, the rest of the group, Derek, so that puts England as one of four sides who are four from four, so 12 points from their four games, just about home with a long qualification still to come. Uh, Ukraine have played three games. They're on six points. Italy have played the two and had the early stumble, so they're on three. Uh, North Macedonia and Malta rounding out. So would you say it looks pretty cut and dried? It'll be uh, England and surely Italy, the holders, to uh, to progress out of Group C? Oh, yeah. So it's like England are going to win this group. Uh, and, yeah, I think Italy will... We'll, we'll get themselves back on track. I think Ukraine's the kind of romantic story, but have have struggled really in, in I suppose in the last the last year or so. So yeah, I'd fully expect England to wrap this group up before before the end of the group stages, and maybe Southgate can try a few things out before they head to Germany. And it's going to be their big game mentality they're going to have to work on. You know, they're they're flat track bullies. There's no doubt about it. Can they turn it on in the big tournament against the big teams? That's still the question mark. Michael Edgley, you've got a steaming hot pad prick pal, the uh, store, stir-fried prawns with the sweet and sour sauce on rice, waiting for you in about 25 minutes' time. Uh, station there in BKK. You've got a game for a week uh, for us as well, and this is one that you saw in the flesh. Absolutely. It was an amazing game. China 3, Australia 5 at the under-17 
AFC Asian Cup. Uh, the Australians had four goals on the board uh, by the 25-minute mark, in two of those by um, the sensation Iren Kunda, who scored with this howitzer. Iren Kunda shoots from distance. It's a howitzer from Nestor Iren Kunda. The Adelaide United superstar who's making his waves in this game. He was the player of the match. He scored two goals. He scored two assists. And I was thought at uh, 25 minutes into the game, Australia had scored four goals. I thought, this is going to be okay. But then three unanswered goals by China meant that we were in for a barnstorming last 20 minutes. And it didn't come. The sealer didn't come until the 98th minute when super sub Amantidis uh, got the job done for the Aussies. And uh, we we live to fight another day. Australia finished, uh, went on to finish second in the group to Saudi Arabia. That 2-0 loss in the first match of their group campaign means that uh, in about an hour's time, as we're recording this show before the Australia-Japan result, uh, the Joeys will play Japan, who uh, had two wins and one draw in their group match, uh, a goal difference of eight. They had, had a quite interesting game against India. Japan beat India 8-4 in the group stage. So um, some tennis scores rather than cricket, rather than uh, soccer scores there, Will. What are you observing of this Joey's group, Edge? You're somewhat up close and personal. You're not right in the inner sanctum, but you do have a pretty keen eye from these things and you watch lots of football from uh, sort of empty stadiums around the world. They're only, you know, 16, 17, these boys. Obviously, Nestor Urenkunda is a little bit of a, a special case. His development, I mean, we're watching him rip apart men in the A-League. But for the rest of them, what are you observing from this group under uh, under Brad Maloney, who is pretty highly respected, but not one to, to sort of rant and rave in public from an Australian football uh, sense? Well, these uh, tournaments are really important because it's about qualifying for the World Cup. If this group qualifies for the World Cup, uh, they need to beat Japan to do that. It means that they're in camp uh, for another significant period of time as they prepare for the World Cup, which means a lot of development time. There's nothing like these tournaments to fast-track development. So they are really, really important. Um, I was disappointed with the match against Saudi Arabia. They, of recent times, the Saudis have had it over the Australians quite significantly in underage football. So, yeah, we seem to be off the pace with the Saudis. They're really improving. Um, but, yeah, this group has some talented players, none more than Aaron Kundo. My team, or my game rather, of the week comes from Paisley Park in Altona. It was the come-from-behind win of Altona Magic in the Victorian men's NPL. Uh, they've defeated fourth-placed Melbourne Knights, and that does keep Altona's season alive, Edge. Uh, they took the lead early. Watch that become a deficit before halftime. But then a second half brace to Tommy Semi, who is a, a Papua New Guinea international, and he's been there uh, been there this season, means that they remain in seventh. Six weeks to go. Now they have lost that. They would have been down in the muck with uh, with Heidelberg and uh, North Dandenong Thunder. Uh, top six make the final, so they are in seventh edge. When the A-League season uh, clears up and there's not a lot of... Uh, not a lot of football on Australian shores. You've, uh, you've got to dip into the, uh, the semi-professional league and the uh, MPL Victoria as across Australia, but the MPL Victoria in particular, plenty of proud old clubs going at it uh, through this uh, through this pretty grim weather period in, in Victoria. So Altona, still alive. Very colourful president at Altona. He's been known to sack and appoint coaches in the one season uh, quite regularly, but uh, well done to Altona Magic there. Very, very good. Uh, my team of the week, before we go back to Derek, is I'm going to Brazil, Botafogo. Uh, for those people who've been to Rio de Janeiro, there's obviously Flamengo, Vasco da Gama, Fluminense and Botafogo. Botafogo, they wear the Magpies colours, uh, for those uh, people that don't know. But Botafogo, very famous club, a club based in the uh, favela, uh, which is known in Brazil, a hugely supported club. Well, they had a 1-0 away win at Cuiabá. Willem, question without notice, Cuiabá. 
What's the link between Cuyabar and Australian football? It would have been either the game against Chile, the Netherlands or Spain in 2014. It was the game against Chile and I'll never forget it because Cuyabar is just over the border from Chile and I'll never forget seeing nine Chileans pile out of a Volkswagen Golf. Nine of them had driven six hours in the one uh, car with them and that's a lot of people in a Golf, just quietly, a car built for five. But having said all of that, um, Botafogo, they go seven points clear on top of the table. So the... Uh, the team from the favela in uh, Rio de Janeiro uh, on top of the Brazilian um, first division. Derek, you want to take us back to the European qualifiers or the Euro qualifiers, I should say, for your team of the week? Yeah, I've gone for uh, Moldova um, in the headlines for different reasons with the uh, dynamic situation there in Eastern Europe and, and everything that's going on. But the 171st ranked team in world football stunned Poland by beating them 3-2. It's their only second qualification win since 2013. They were 2-0 down and looking out of it after 34 minutes. Goals from Milik and uh, our favourite Robert Lewandowski with his 79th goal um, for his country. Uh, The Poles were in clues control, but um, uh, Nicolescu scored twice to get them back at level on terms. Um, he, as a result, went to uh, that. That put him as the national record holder of Moldova with twelve goals, which uh, maybe tells you a little bit about the uh, the state and status of uh, Moldovan uh, football. But a player called Vladislav uh, Babo 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 <laughs> Should have practiced that one a few times. But Babo um, he headed in a late a late winner. Um, and uh, put put Moldova into into uh, dreamland. And let's put this into context. They are ranked below Saint Lucia and Vanuatu. Uh, they've only won one of their past forty three games in the European Championships, and that was over uh, Andorra. And they're currently sitting third in uh, the group, and they're above Poland uh, in the qualification in the race for um, uh, for Euro twenty twenty four. I know that we have in the past put some probably over-the-top attention on Gibraltar, but maybe uh, we should switch our allegiances to Moldova because they uh, seem to be doing the business. Derek, how excited are you? And then I'll ask you a sort of funny one to speak on behalf of all of Europe. How excited are you for this upcoming Euro? So we've had the World Cup in Russia across a a sort of massive landmass. We've had a World Cup in Qatar, which was a a little bit different, not a traditional football nation. The stadiums were built, the, you know, the, uh, the, the, uh, additional things surrounding the tournament in terms of, you know, pubs, venues, they, they weren't there. Uh, we've had the, the last Euros, which were spread across the entire continent. And with uh, tournament sizes increasing, we're only going to see uh, tournaments grow and grow. So to have this one coming up with 24 sides in Germany, which is a big country, but it is a traditional football country, no doubt about it. Uh, the history, the culture sort of saturated in one spot. It feels like something of a, a, pure, a pure tournament. And I know Edge... You know, is looking at me like that through the uh, through the Zoom there. Uh, not not to disparage the way that football is going, and you know these major tournaments, the more the merrier. Certainly, that's how the game grows across the uh, the nation. But does this feel like sort of stepping back in time a little bit, going one, uh, yeah, going back for just sort of one last hurrah on the uh, the traditional sort of tighter football tournament? Yeah, I mean, I mean, apparently the the 2006 World Cup, I think it was 2006 in Germany, was a fantastic tournament enjoyed by fans from across the world and I think we all know that Germany's you know a, you know great great footballing 
nation. They've obviously got fantastic infrastructure. Um, so yeah, like I, I suppose, yeah, like it's kind of going back, back to the future, so to speak, uh, with with them. But um, oh, look, I think football is just about the variety, isn't it? So you know, I'm excited about you know Canada, Mexico, and and America taking it on uh, in the World Cup. You know, I think that would be an amazing uh, tournament. And we don't know too many of the ones to come, but you know, I think Qatar, you know, had had. Uh, a distinctiveness about it you know even russia and it's been in the news this week obviously but there was a lot of good things said about russia in uh you know in terms of a place to visit even if it was sort of um the rules were temporarily suspended uh to to a, a for a more accommodating atmosphere in the country but uh yeah look i'm excited is in i think there's some really good teams i think there's always good teams in the euros but i think england are looking fantastic i think germany looking will be hosting it looking good um spain rebuilding have just won the nations league uh yeah i just think as you know europeans are always it's always an excellent tournament and you know i don't know if there's a clear favorite which i think would also make it exciting too you're looking displeased with me edge no not at all i think um i think you're right to point that out we've had uh some interesting international football tournaments so the euros being held in one location is going to be significant and, and um just the ease of getting around Germany is going to be a lot of fun. My team of the week comes from Japan, a nation we know which has many numerous big clubs. With respect, I don't think Sagan Tosu generally come straight to mind. Uh, they tend to float around the, the bottom half of the, the J1 league. Uh, last week, they lost to Kevin Muscat's Yokohama F Marinos 6-1 in the League Cup. So what's the best way to put that behind you? Turn it around with the uh, with a similar scoreline. They've pumped Shonen Belmari 6-0 away from home. A hat-trick to Yuji Ono uh, helps them up to 8th edge. Like we're accustomed to in Australia and what we've seen through the transition from the NSL into the A-League, they're a mix and match of a, a few entities and clubs. Uh, the Sagan part of it was established in 97 to take over from the pre-existing Tosu Futures Club, which had gone insolvent. Their first season in the J-League uh, came, what's that, about 15 years later in 2012, and that was actually their highest finish, uh, fifth. They've never won any silverware. And they've got a heavily homegrown squad at the minute under Kenta Kawai, the manager. All Japanese bar three South Koreans and a Kenyan defender, Teddy Akumu. Uh, so 6-0 for uh, Sagantosu over Shonen Belmari up to eighth J-League season. Uh, as league, yeah, it happens every year. It's just like the uh, the Victorian NPL edge. This is the time when, as league season shuts down around uh, the world, the two that do remain are the NPL and the J-League. They are. Sagantosu. Have they had a mention on this show before? Don't think so. Uh, hey, are we up to yeah. hot topics? Yeah, we can we can start the hot topics. Can I go first? Is that Absolutely. okay, Derek? Okay, as we just get into casual mode on stoppage time. Well, I've got two little snippets of hot topics. The first one is the Wrexham owners. They are so pumped with how they're going. They've bought in to the Alpine Formula One team believe it or not. Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhoney have parted way with a fair chunk of change to purchase. They're part of a consortium, uh, a significant part of a consortium that's purchased 24% of the Formula One racing team Alpine. I'm not a Formula One fan, uh, Derek, but do they do any good, Alpine? I don't think they do, but I think it's uh, something that's been raised on this show before, which is at the end of the day by, you know, gaining access to these, these clubs and teams, uh, then you're getting access to content. So I'm yeah. pretty sure they'll have seen the drive to survive, yep. which I haven't seen yet still, but apparently was uh, well received and 
gave uh, Formula One a shot in the arm. And yeah, by owning the assets, you own the rights to film what's going on in the assets. I'm sure they'll be trying to rekindle that magic and probably if they go for an Alpine, then yeah, it's maybe a similar Wrexham story where you've got a, a plucky underdog and maybe they're going to go and live the dream. So I, I would imagine that's what they're doing. It is now, but the real hot topic for me is two delistings. Uh, Women's Super League uh, in England is the transfer season is open, so delistings have been made, and Manchester City has delisted Hayley Rasso, and Tottenham Hotspur has delisted Kaya Simon. So two Australians uh, on the outer of their Women's Super League clubs. I guess time will tell as to whether they pop up at another place. But that's just something of a little bit of interest that's a bit of a hot topic for me, Willem. Not good news for Hayley in particular, who was out of favour at Manchester City for the back half of the season. I do rate Hayley Rasso, the kamikaze kid, extremely highly, and I hope she finds another competitive club in the Women's Super League. What happened with the Real Madrid links, Edge? You're close with the family, and I don't know, there's maybe some things you can say, some things you can't, but that was pretty exciting when she was having a, a medical at Real Madrid, all confirmed by the looks of it, but it's fallen flat. Well, we just haven't seen anything news beyond that, so we just don't know what's going on, but maybe there's an announcement coming soon, Will. Derek, we'll come to you for your uh, your hot topic. We're heading back to England. Yeah, apologies. It's all very Euro and England-centric this week, but uh, I was just taken aback by the news that Gary O'Neill had uh, left his position at... Um, Bournemouth, I remember in some of our reviews of the season that we'd spoken very warmly of the job that he'd done uh, taking over from Scott Parker. He had lost 9-0 to Liverpool, if you recall, and um, he came in and steadied the ship and, you know, albeit they, they, you know for a period they looked like they were being dragged into the, into the relegation uh, mire. Um, they managed to... Um, to turn it around with some good results at the end of the season. They're on a shoestring budget compared to the rest of the league. It's the smallest ground uh, in the league. Um, and, uh, you know, I thought he'd be given a, another crack by Bournemouth and, and and surely he'll get another crack with another club, uh, maybe seen as a bit of a rescue operator, you know, once the head start rolling next season. But, um I had a quick quiz for you both. Uh, what, what was who was the last uh, English manager to win the Premier League? Uh, it was the gentleman in not. Oh, he's Kenny Dalglish, Scottish, isn't he? I don't it think is. it's ever happened. It's never happened. It's never happened. That's the correct answer. So the year, the year before the Premier League, Howard, Howard Wilkinson uh, won it with Leeds United in ninety one, ninety two, but. There hasn't been an English uh, manager winning the Premier League, and there isn't going to be one if young managers keep getting sacked. And I'm not trying to be parochial; quite the opposite. I'm big, you know, big fan of the uh, the global game, and obviously as an Arsenal fan, and part of the reason for that is Wenger. Obviously, had a, a say in that. Obviously, Ferguson a long run there, but you know, uh, if you if these managers are not going to be given opportunities, Edge, then what chance have England got of producing? Quality managers. I can the only one I can think of is Eddie Howe doing some good stuff at Newcastle. But yeah, I just felt was that a bit harsh from Gary O'Neill? Do you think? Oh, I think it was extremely harsh that he got uh, the sack. Um, you know, we all know how difficult it is to take those little clubs into a competitive unit in the Premier League. I mean, there's no surely there was no expectation that he would finish in the top four or five clubs on the table. So very very harsh. And you make a good point about that. Uh, in terms of the English managers. It, it, it is an important thing to note that uh, some of these clubs have responsibilities. But the, the, the one stat that I always find interesting, and it's been 
uh, documented in a number of yeah, pretty credible media outlets is that they do say that Jose Mourinho has made more money from being sacked than actually uh, his coaching contract. So his payouts have been, in terms of the total amount of money that Jose's meant in his, uh, that he's, um, Mourinho's made in his coaching career, he's actually made more money from being sacked than he has from coaching, believe it or not. Derek, yeah. I've got a pop quiz for you. When was the first time an Australian manager will win the Premier League? Get your crystal ball out. <laughs> Next season, obviously. Yeah, two years' time. Uh, uh, with uh, with uh, uh, yeah, with Ange, but yeah, it's it, it, look. Um, I don't know much about Iriola, who's coming in. He comes from the Basque Country, same as Arteta. Um, did some stuff at Rav Vicano as a manager that they looked at before. It does have kind of shades of when um, Mauricio Pochettino came in to replace Nigel Adkins at um, at South at Southampton. Uh, or Potter coming in uh, for Hewton, maybe. You know, it has smacks of that. But, um, and you look, know, obviously worked out with Pochettino. But, yeah, I just I just feel like, you know, the great managers that come in, I want nothing wrong with, nothing against international managers like the Mark, the Jose Mourinho, um, Arsene Wenger. I don't know if you call Ferguson a foreign manager. But anyway, you know, like, there's no doubt that these guys leave an indelible legacy uh, in, in the league. But, you just wonder, you know, if the attitude is always going to be to bring in someone with a kind of sexy-sounding uh, international surname and that's going to sound better on paper than Gary O'Neill, this kind of slightly geezerish manager from South London. I think that's just, uh, you know, uh, shame shame, you know, shame, know, for him. But I think he'll be back and I'll make a bet now that he'll, he will have a Premier League job at some point in the 23-24 season. My hot topic comes from Saudi Arabia. We've discussed it a fair bit over the last little while, but Chelsea, uh, fair exodus this week. We know N'Golo Kante left uh, last week. Kaladu Koulibaly, the uh, centre-back, uh, has left for Al-Hilal Derek just a year into a four-year contract. Uh, and Edward Mendy, the goalkeeper, who's you know a little bit closer to his prime, uh, is expected to join Al-Ali. Uh, we know Ronaldo's there, Benzema's there, Ruben Neves from Wolves uh, has gone there as well. Uh, we know why, Derek, the, uh, the public investment fund ramping up their, their sort of soft power. Extraordinarily, if you're a golf fan, we've seen the, uh, the merging of the, uh, the PGA and the Live Golf Tour over the past little while. Uh, yeah, it's not necessarily one that is causing a great deal of head scratching, but it is one that is dominating the, uh, the, the tabloids, particularly over in the UK at its transfer season. And just about everyone seems to be heading to uh, Saudi Arabia, Edge. Does it? strike you as being a little bit hypocritical if anybody in England complains about players being poached by the Saudi Arabian League on the basis that the Premier League is pure capitalism 101. No salary cap, uh, no no um, restrictions. It's just a free market. If you've got the money, you pay the players. If you've got the money, you, you, you buy the players. Now, doesn't it strike you as a little bit hypocritical and maybe... I'm going out on a limb by saying a little bit racist if they were to complain that the Saudis, with more money, are taking players. Was anybody complaining? People are complaining, uh, but I think, I think, look, the PIF and Saudi Arabia have got the right to spend their money on whatever they want within international economic frameworks. And they can, of course, um, you know, if they want to uh, invest in their league and bring over quality players, that's no different to... China doing it, or indeed uh, Lionel Messi going to Miami. You know, these are these are like stories as as old as as old as time. So I don't fundamentally have 
an issue with them doing it. Um, maybe I have an issue with the motivation behind doing it to, to a degree, which is a maybe a discussion for for another day. But I think probably the, the the thing that I'm not entirely across, but so bear with me, is the connection between PIF, um, Chelsea Football Club in particular, um, and there's some kind of murkiness around who owns Chelsea and whether PIF kind of indirectly owns Chelsea and Newcastle United and whether Todd Bowley and Chelsea are kind of conveniently being able to offload you know, quite highly paid stars who are in the September of their careers without a, you know, huge prospects of a huge resale. Um, you know, Kula Bali would be a good example. Ingolo Kante uh, would be another another example there that, you know, that it seems quite fortunate that they're able to sort of dump these players into Saudi Arabia to balance the books after their huge spending spree that they, they did last season. And apparently it looks like that they're, continuing again so i think if there's a question it's just around that little nexus of what exactly is going on there and and do certain teams have a competitive advantage like chelsea over other teams that don't have potentially direct or indirect links to the pif but i don't have any issue with players going to saudi arabia in the sense of like i said they can spend the money on what they like and there probably is a bit of hypocrisy because the premier league's made a habit of just buying all the best players in the world from everyone else and Derek, if that were to be to case, not to not to put you on the spot, but just sort of something in the back of the mind, going through the fair and proper ownership test, does say that there are rules against owning stakes in competitors within certain leagues, are there not? Yeah, there certainly are. But I mean, I'm sure there are very clever financial um, uh, devices that you can use to to build um, some distance between between you. You know, these hedge funds that come in and buy clubs. You don't necessarily know where the money's come from at all. They have a figurehead like Todd Bowley. He's kind of kind of slightly buffoonish, kind of Boris Johnson style guy. Kind of fronts it up and uh, and so to speak. But you don't necessarily know uh, necessarily know where the money's come. You could make an argument that actually, you know, at least we, with Newcastle, we very much know where the money's come from. It's very you know, it's very obvious where the money's come from. Whereas, yeah, I think that is what people say. I'm not an investigative journalist. I don't have control of all the facts. All I can do is report what people are saying in the media and that's that's that little nexus in particular that people are focused on as as opposed to does Saudi Arabia have a right to have a football league invest in its football league regardless of the motivations for why we think they're doing it I don't think that's necessarily in debate I think you make a very good point Derek about that nexus because if there's any murkiness that might exist it's probably at Chelsea because we, we shouldn't forget the circumstances by which the club was sold uh, in the uh, Roman Abramovich um, having to you know get rid of it because of sanctions and the stuff that was happening in Ukraine, it was a bit of a fire sale. There was a lot of political pressure to get it done, um, you know. So, yeah, who knows uh, what has transpired there? But uh, yeah, that's a very interesting little nexus that uh, Derek raises, and we should rightly be interested to see where that goes. But in terms of the, you know, the Saudis have money and they're buying players, they're buying players. 
And with that comes the whistle for full time. You boys have both got uh, meals to attend to. A huge thanks to Adam Maloney on the buttons. Always greatly appreciated, Adam. And thank you for your company on box to box Stoppage Time. A reminder to please like and subscribe to us, box to box on Facebook, at box to box nts on Twitter, and box to boxcom online, where you can read our written content. Please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be next in your feed on Tuesday morning for the weekly show. The Women's World Cup will be less than two weeks away by that point, and I reckon we might just have an Ange Postecoglou presser at Spurs to digest. As always, we'll go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.